Vaccination is one approach to COVID by triggering acquired immunity. But what else can be employed to support our innate immunity and ability to suppress viral replication? In this month's podcast, I'll be updating you on three strong candidates, vitamin C, vitamin D, and the anti-parasite drug ivermectin. I'm going to be talking to vitamin D expert, Dr. David Grimes, and ivermectin expert, Dr. Tess Laurie, founder of the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group. But first, I want to share with you the very exciting results of a review of 12 trials of vitamin C for the treatment of COVID, five of which were the gold standard randomized placebo controlled trials, which was published on Tuesday in the journal Life. Now, this review was written by four of us, myself, Associate Professor Anitra Carr, and her wonderful PhD student, Mazuma Zawari from the Nutrition and Medicine Research Group at the University of Otago, and Dr. Marcella Vizcachipi from the Faculty of Medicine at Imperial College, who leads uh, research into intensive care medicine at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Now, this review of 12 studies had three main findings. Firstly, it showed that patients with COVID-19 infection appear to have depleted vitamin C status and require additional supplementation of vitamin C during the acute phase of the disease. Generally speaking, the more severe the symptoms were, the lower was the vitamin C status. In one study, the vitamin C status actually predicted survival. My co-author, uh, Dr. Marcella Vizcachipi has been giving COVID patients in their ICU at Chelsea and Westminster up to six grams of vitamin C intravenously, depending on the severity of disease and the amount needed to correct deficiency, which is indicated by vitamin C urine sticks, a very simple process. Uh, we should normally be excreting some vitamin C in the urine. Uh, if you dip one of these urine sticks in the urine and there is no vitamin C, then you know that that person needs vitamin C. And when there starts to be some vitamin C recording on the urine stick, you know that you've reached enough. Uh, she says vitamin C is certainly one of multiple factors that contributes to better outcomes and speed of recovery. It should be standard practice. We have not had any safety issues at all. Now, in terms of effectiveness, we've looked at 12 vitamin C and COVID-19 trials that have been published in peer-reviewed journals, five are randomized controlled trials, and seven are what are called retrospective cohort studies. The current level of evidence, and I'm reading from the abstract of this paper from the randomized controlled trials, suggests that intravenous vitamin C intervention may improve oxygenation parameters, so more oxygen, reduce inflammatory markers, less inflammation, decrease days in hospital and reduce mortality, particularly in the more severely ill patients. High doses of oral vitamin C supplementation may also improve the rate of recovery in less severe cases. That's a quote from the abstract. Now, what we found generally speaking was the higher the dose of vitamin C, the better were the results. So we can now say that vitamin C works and should be used routinely in the treatment of critically ill COVID patients. There's only been one randomized controlled trial 
published on outpatients. And what it showed was that oral doses of eight grams per day have been shown to increase the rate of recovery from symptomatic infection by 70%, reducing the duration of infection by about 1.2 days. Now, I think that's an underestimate of the power of vitamin C for two reasons. Firstly, because in this study, a person had to first elect to come to an outpatient clinic. They'd probably been sick for several days before they would do that, then get tested and then enter the trial. And what we know about vitamin C is that if you start at the very beginning of symptoms, it's much more effective. So I think this is an underestimate of the true power of vitamin C in early treatment of COVID. And the second is, as Linus Pauling and myself um, advocate, uh, is the dose of eight grams a day, well, that's fine, uh, but why not take a gram an hour or two grams every two hours, which is what Linus Pauling recommended. Uh, the dose, the effects may be better, but we don't have a study for that yet. The third finding, which needs to be underlined, is that there were no adverse events reported in any of these published vitamin C trials in COVID-19 patients. So not one single adverse event. I mean, that's very important. So we now have clear evidence that vitamin C works both for prevention and for treatment, yet despite this has not been reviewed by our NICE, that's the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and their rapid C19 uh, oversight group, their expert group, um, despite rapid C19 telling Public Health England's advisory group not to review vitamin C or vitamin D because they'd be doing it. So now let's focus on vitamin D. My first guest today is David Grimes, who qualified in medicine at Manchester University in 1966. He was consultant in general medicine and gastroenterology in Blackburn in Lancashire since 1977 until he finally retired at the end of 2014. He has been concerned with the geographic, social and ethnic variations in health affecting his patients and the local population. And this led to a long research interest that identified the immense importance of vitamin D in our health. David, um, you've had your finger on the pulse of vitamin D for COVID throughout the pandemic. Now, breaking it down into two chunks, that is prevention and treatment, where are we at regarding vitamin D and the prevention of COVID? Well, the problem is that it's not been taken very seriously for a number of reasons. Personally, I've been involved in vitamin D for about... 20 years, a bit more than 20 years, in fact, 30 years, since I realized that a great deal of ill health in the location where I live, which, or in Lancashire, and working in Blackburn, was related to vitamin D deficiency. You know, the geography of disease in this country is very much orientated towards good health in the southeast, bad health, and reduced life expectancy expectancy in the Northwest. And this is particularly so for the people who live in uh, the inner city areas with um, small terraced houses, and in particular, the South Asian immigrant population. And I identify that all these groups have lower vitamin D levels. 
people living in small houses without gardens, people who are poor, and people who have South Asian ethnicity. They all have low vitamin D levels. So that put me onto the, onto the centre, as it were, uh, 30 years ago. And when this pandemic occurred, I realised the first thing that must be done is to optimise the immune defensive processes of the population. And the quickest way and easiest way to do that is to make sure that nobody is deficient in vitamin D. Now, I wasn't the only person to say that, but there are a number of people at the beginning in March 2020 who are taking that line of action. But officialdom took no notice because the scene had already been set for vaccines only. And that was the policy of the WHO, vaccines only. And nothing must get in the way. And so vitamin D was completely sidelined. But several studies came in at the beginning, which stated, which showed quite clearly that people with low blood levels of vitamin D were very susceptible to severe and fatal COVID-19. Well, there we are. What we needed was vitamin D. It's as simple as that. That is prevention. And is there, uh, when we actually break that down into levels, because when I came, I've actually, as a nutritionist, been pushing vitamin D for 20 years. And you'll, you'll find this quite um, amusing in an ironic way. But several years ago, I got a black mark from the Advertising Standards Agency because I wrote a, an article that said that you cannot get enough vitamin D in the winter. You must supplement it. And they had a rule then that said that you cannot imply that you can't get all the nutrients you need from a well-balanced diet and therefore uh, um, you're reported, so to speak. So uh, it, back in those days, one was considered to be deficient if the blood level was below 50 um, nanomoles per liter. But where are we at in relation to COVID prevention, the risk of becoming infected or the risk of developing severe conditions? What, what is the ideal blood level of vitamin D? What do studies uh, inform us about that? The studies effectively show that if the blood level is above 120 nanomoles per litre, the chance of dying from COVID-19 is approximately zero. It's as simple as that. That's been shown. Now, you mentioned 50 nanomoles per litre. The, the evidence is that if your blood level is above 50 nanomoles per litre, you won't get rickets or osteomalacia. And that is far as the nutritionists have, have been going. But when it comes down to immune competence, the blood level needs to be above about 120 nanomoles per litre. But that's not recognised by the nutritionists who only regard vitamin D as being important in bone metabolism. And how many people in the UK, just to give us a perspective of that, have a level <laughs> below 50? And how many have a level above 100 or even 120? Well, from my research done in Blackburn a few years ago, only about 
no, less than, well, say about 10% would have a blood level above 100 nanomoles per litre. And about 80% would have a blood level less than, well, no, 50% would have a blood level less than 50 nanomoles per litre. So 50% of people were seriously deficient in vitamin D as judged by immune competence and risk of death from COVID-19. Now, I was told a very interesting thing by um, Dr. William Grant, which I thought was very practical. He said, if you, if you stand outside on a sunny day and your shadow is longer than your body, you're not going to be making vitamin D. So here we are, um, it's November, and we're at that point where the angle of the sun uh, is insufficient, I believe, to make vitamin D. So therefore, surely our only option is to supplement. And if so, how much should we be supplementing across the winter to get above 100 and ideally to 120 nanomoles per litre? And perhaps I can also uh, ask that in another way and say, what do you take? Okay, two things. Firstly, that is correct. Um, for uh, Bill Grant's assessment was correct. For six months of the year, we don't create vitamin D in our blood. The, the year has two seasons, the vitamin D production season and the vitamin D no production season or vitamin D deficiency season. That's it. Now, when it comes down to how much to take, we've got to go back to what, to vitamin D itself discovered about a hundred years ago, but it couldn't be measured physically. It was measured by bioassay. And the definition of one unit of vitamin D is the daily requirement of a 10 gram immature mouse. That's the definition of it. So if we scale up from a 10 gram mouse to a 60 kilogram human, then it requires 6,000 units a day for the 60 kilogram human and say 120,000 units, per, sorry, 12,000 units per day for 120 kilogram human. To be on the safe side, we take say half that. So I weigh a bit more than 60 kilograms, but rather than taking 6,000 units a day, I take 3,000 units a day and that gives me a blood level of vitamin D of 120 nanomoles per litre. So I'm very happy with that. So that's a very clear guideline. Are some countries doing this or recommending their people to do this? No, I think most people or advisors are not aware of the definition of one unit of vitamin D. What they say is what we should take is an amount of vitamin D sufficient to prevent rickets in children and osteomalacia in adults, which is about 400 units per day. But that bears no cognizance of the immune functions of vitamin D, which often are officially not recognized. The problem being is how do we measure immunity? We can't measure immunity directly. In fact, the blood level of vitamin D 
is the best surrogate for measuring immunity. But apart from vitamin D, we cannot measure immunity. All we can do is look, well, the present pandemic gives us the wonderful opportunity to look at the importance of blood levels of vitamin D. And as I say, once the blood level gets above 120 nanomoles per liter, the chance of dying from COVID-19 is approximately zero. We've had huge opportunities to learn during this pandemic, but I'm not sure that learning is being taken very seriously. Now, I know Ireland looked at Finland. Finland did better than many countries, despite being very far north. And I believe the Scandinavian countries, by virtue of their northernness, had already learnt that vitamin D was important. And uh, so currently, I believe the recommendation in Ireland is that everyone takes a thousand units. You've already made it clear that that is not enough. But is, is that the case, that have countries that have at least recommended some vitamin D done better than others? And has, is there a geographic distribution? In other words, how have the equatorial countries done? <laughs> well, the equatorial countries did very well um, in that a place like, country like Uganda had about 10 um, deaths per million population to the, a, a thousand. Um, deaths per million population in this country. The, the Ugandan man living in Uganda was safe. The Ugandan man living in the UK was in danger. No question about that. Things have changed a bit, though, in 2021 compared to 2020. We, things are, are, have been much worse. But nevertheless, 2021 has been very unusual in that this has been the year of vaccines, whereas 2020 was the year of what you might call nature. Now, you write that in Finland, food is fortified with vitamin D, and they've been doing very well, except during this year, in the, in the summer of this year, the cases per day in Finland has gone up quite dramatically and rather worryingly for a small country. But these are just cases. And as we know, in this country, the cases are just completely out of control and have been since the middle of July this year. And what is actually going on in this country with all these cases, not deaths, but cases, I've no idea. I don't understand what's happening. And I don't think anybody does quite honestly. But nevertheless, vitamin D seems to keep people very safe. Now, the UK authorities seem to have an aversion to recommending supplements. Uh, vitamin D briefly reared its head when Scotland announced they'd be supplementing people in care homes. Uh, what's happened south of the border since then? Last winter, in about November or December last year, the government announced it would be giving people in care homes or elderly people vitamin D supplements because during lockdown they would be staying indoors and therefore they would become vitamin D deficient and might develop bone disease. Well this was just cynical because it's the same every year and why should they just give vitamin D this year? Anyway the small amount offered was I think a thousand units per day 
but elderly people don't produce vitamin D in the skin anyway. Vitamin D is produced by the action of UV light on the oil 7-dehydrocholesterol. Elderly people have thin, dry skin and they do not produce this oil and therefore they cannot produce vitamin, uh, vitamin D. And this was demonstrated clearly 20 years ago. But so much data generated 20 years ago has not been absorbed into current thinking by our so-called experts. But saying when I mention experts, I will also mention that uh, Dominic Cummings in his uh, podcast last week told us that all the experts and their families are taking vitamin D, but they're not telling anybody else. There again, a cynical view. Now, moving on to treatment, a number of studies giving either high doses of vitamin D or the hormone that it converts into uh, to critical COVID patients are reporting good results. So what's the state of the evidence there, the treatment of critical COVID? Is it being used in some intensive care units? Should it be? Well, it most certainly should be because the evidence is all there. Now, the problem is with vitamin D is it, it, it's a steady state. And when vitamin D is produced in the skin or taken by diet or given by injection, it has to go to the liver. And in the liver, it has to be converted into its first stage active metabolite, which is 25-OH vitamin D. And that process takes two weeks. And this has been known for 20 years. So if we give, if someone is in hospital with severe pneumonia and we say, well, we're going to give an antibiotic in two weeks time, people won't be very happy about that. And so if we get people admitted to hospital on account of severe COVID-19, in, in, uh, COVID-19, and we say, well, we're going to give you vitamin D, but it won't be active for two weeks. They similarly wouldn't be very happy. And we've been shown from studies in Brazil that giving vitamin D itself to uh, people in critical care is of no benefit. It's not because vitamin D is of no benefit, but in its raw form, it isn't activated quickly enough. So it has to be given in its activated form. And in its activated form, is called calcidiol or calcifediol, one of the other names that mean the same thing. This was used imaginatively in Spain, initially in Cordoba and then in Barcelona, Barcelona, producing very, very good results, showing a huge benefit from calcifediol given at this circumstance, at this on admission to hospital. The results were dramatic. And we can take, for example, in Cordoba, um, in, the, um, in, the, in the control patients, 50% needed transfer to ICU and 8% died. And in the calcifediol treated group on admission to hospital, only, only one, only 2% required transfer to ICU and that person survived. A dramatic benefit from giving, giving activated vitamin D, calcifediol, um, to intensive care, to patients admitted to hospital, be with critical disease. Now, this study was rubbished by NICE. It is a disgrace. And NICE said, our National Institute for Clinical Excellence said, the results of this study should not 
influence clinical practice. That was absolutely disgraceful, and it condemned many, many people to dying from COVID-19. Later in 2020, a further trial came from Barcelona. We showed very, very similar results. Um, in the controlled patients, 21.1 patients required intensive care admission if they were given calcivodiol on admission to hospital, 21% in the controls and 5% in, uh, in the treated group. Dramatic benefit. Once again, silence this time from, from uh, NICE. Made no comment and it did not influence clinical practice in this country. Calcivodiol has not been given in this country to people admitted to hospital. Now, I saw a couple of studies using calcitriol. What is, what is that? Well, that is the second stage of activation of vitamin D. So we get calcidiol, we get vitamin D activated to calcidiol, which mainly in the cells and in the kidneys is activated further to calcitriol. And this is the form that is really active and, and does the trick switching on immune protection. And this trial was in New York, published very, very recently. And this showed that um, they didn't look at mortality. Yeah, well, they did look at mortality, yes. There were 25 patients in the treated group, 25 in the control group, and... Um, there were no deaths in the, in the treaty group, and there were three out of 25 deaths in the, in the control group. There were very, various measures of uh, benefit, all showed a great benefit from giving calcitriol. Now, calcifediol is not readily available in this country. It could become available very quickly. It's actually used in cattle feed, we care more about our cattle than we do about our human beings in this country. Calcitriol is readily available everywhere and that could be given, but it is not being given. Now, NICE um, set up Rapid C19, the group of experts across the National Health Service with a remit to rapidly, hence the name, find safe and effective treatments for COVID. Have Rapid C19 reviewed the evidence for vitamin D? No, it has not used vitamin D at all. Vitamin D has not been, in any of its forms, has not been part of the, the trials there in that group. And, it hasn't, and the, the studies haven't been reviewed. So there's no official review from the government of vitamin D. No, correct, no. correct. Now, oh, another factor is during this pandemic, earlier in 2020, we had what's called the, the accelerator from a combination of the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Foundation, who were giving grants for what could be done to help COVID-19, COVID-19. And they excluded written in black and white, excluded any vitamin trials. No vitamin studies allowed. Intravenous vitamin C is a very effective as an antioxidant. Intravenous acetylcysteine, very effective as an antioxidant, but they were not allowed. 
by the Welcome Gates Accelerator. And vitamin D was not allowed for research in the, by the, sponsored by the vitamin D, sorry, by the Gates Foundation Welcome Accelerator. Now in Oxford, we have, um, we have Oxford University's big data lab. They have access to all NHS records and they've been reporting, you know, certain we call comorbidities that diabetics and people with high blood pressure have more risk of COVID. It always struck me as rather obvious that um, one could use this big data to see the correlation between vitamin D status. There must be probably millions of people who've had their vitamin D status measured by their GP and the instance and severity of COVID infection. Has the big data lab looked at anything? No, I'm afraid not. If they have done, they're keeping very quiet about it. I know that GPs have been discouraged from checking blood levels of vitamin D, although many of them have been, have been um, prescribing vitamin D and advising it, and I think most doctors are taking vitamin D. But the, there are only about 120 laboratories in this country associated with you know, the NHS who've be, who measure blood levels of vitamin D. And all the results are there. And they could be correlated, brought together. They could be collated and they could be correlated with outcome. There must be a vast database of vitamin D. I know GPs have been um, discouraged from doing the test, but I know that the tests have been done. Mine has been done for one and uh, my wife's for another. But the Oxford group could have brought all that vitamin D work together and to produce a correlation between um, outcome and vitamin D level. But as far as I know, it's not been done and it certainly hasn't been published. So in summary, vitamin D um, helps prevent COVID. It helps treat COVID. The studies are there already. Uh, the data that we could look at in relation to the UK's vitamin D status and COVID status is all there ready to be analysed, but nothing is being done. Correct. As, as I mentioned, the experts are all taking vitamin D, but they're not, no advice to the general public, though. Well, thank you immensely for keeping your finger on the pulse. It must be extremely frustrating. That's the uh, frustration is the understatement, I'm afraid. But it's terrible to watch 138,000 deaths in the UK, knowing very well that probably most of them could have been prevented had we had a policy of using vitamin D. Food for thought. Now I'm joined by Dr. Tess Laurie, who is an evidence-based medicine expert and director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy and author of over 80 research papers, as well as an expert in the research on ivermectin. She's produced a very informative site, bird-group.org, which is the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group, B-I-R-D-group.org. We'll start by talking about ivermectin as our third candidate for prevention and treatment of COVID, then talk about a new initiative that Tess is very much involved with called the World Council for Health. So welcome, Tess. Thank you, Patrick. Now, ivermectin, what is it and what is it about it that could help 
with COVID prevention and treatment. Give us a little bit of background to this okay. um, drug. Well, um, ivermectin is a World Health Organization essential medicine, uh, and it's primarily uh, been used for parasitic disease for the last 40 years or so. It was um, discovered in Japan by Professor Satoshi Amura and developed by Merck in the, in the 80s, um, along with Professor John Campbell, uh, to, um, to be used as an antiparasitic medicine for primarily for worms, onchocerciasis, river blindness. Um, but um, I suppose it's much like other um, uh, anti-parasitic agents. Um, and um, more recently, I would say over the last um, five or 10 years, uh, it's been noted to have other properties. So antiviral properties, anti-inflammatory properties, even anti-cancer properties. And uh, there are many uh, articles that have been written about it. Um, and um, in, in 2015, the, in recognition of its immense um, usefulness to mankind, because it's also used uh, in veterinary uh, medicine and in, in um, livestock, because um, you know, obviously uh, parasites are an issue with livestock. Um, they, you know, the, the developers, Professor Satoshi Muir and John Campbell, actually received a Nobel Prize for medicine in 2015. So it's an enormously useful medicine. And I think because it's a generic medicine, we actually haven't explored its usefulness to the full because there's no promoter of it. You know, there's nobody um, promoting its, um, its use in cancer, for example, or there's, or there's nobody investigating, researching it. So it's one of those medicines that's kind of just been um, forgotten about to a degree because uh, it, it's generic and there's no pharmaceutical company that would stand to make large profits like they do with the development of new molecules uh, and new drugs. And what does it do specifically for the, you know, the coronavirus? Well, um, there's actually, there's a review paper that shows that it has many mechanisms of action, but um, it, um, it blocks the, the virus's ability to replicate and to attach to the cell. Uh, it, it prevents the virus from actually getting into the nucleus, which is where it causes its immune suppression uh, act, uh, actions. Um, and it also has uh, an effect on, on um, modulating the immune system, um, increasing the good uh, chemicals and decreasing the bad chemicals that cause inflammation because um, COVID is essentially an inflammatory disease. Um, and the other thing that uh, very importantly that ivermectin has been noted to do is that it, um, it blocks the, the um, it stops the red cells from, from, um, from clumping together, which um, I'm sure everybody's aware um, clotting is one of the issues with, with COVID, especially, you know, the longer you, you leave it untreated. So it has a number of mechanisms of action. And um, certainly this is borne out in the clinical data because doctors around the world are using it and finding it to be very useful in COVID, both for early treatment and late treatment. And the early treatment would probably be an antiviral effect and the later effects would probably be more related to its anti-inflammatory effects. Now, 
Um, I take two grams of vitamin C a day just for general prevention. And I take more if I actually get uh, a viral infection. And then recently we've been hearing about um, how vitamin C is anti-inflammatory and intravenously used could be very effective at the in, in sort of critical COVID, the more kind of sepsis type state. It sounds like ivermectin um, is another of these sort of three in one. Um, is there, so how should we be using it, you know, starting at the beginning? Is there a merit in taking ivermectin anyway during a pandemic? And should we take more uh, if we become infected? Uh, we can talk about the critical medicine, you know, phase a, a bit later. Yes. Well, the thing with using ivermectin and in fact in treating COVID is that you want to use a combination of therapies. So you need the immune boosting uh, and balancing uh, uh, supplements like vitamin C and D and, and zinc and um, and quercetin and those sorts of things. So, you know, when, when talking about ivermectin, uh, there's no doctor in the world, I think, at the moment saying that this is the, you know, the cure for COVID on its own and you don't need anything else. I think people, what people need to understand about COVID is you need to take something that's antiviral. You need, firstly, you need to maintain a healthy immune system, which is diet, sunshine, exercise, and um, supplements, healthy eating. Uh, but then you need something that's going to tackle the antiviral, you know, be an antiviral, and you need something that's going to be um, anti-inflammatory and, and um, antihistamines are, are good as well uh, in that group um, and anticoagulants. So aspirin is, uh, daily aspirin is good to prevent clotting, but there are other things as well. Um, so from an ivermectin point of view, um, for early treatment, um, what, uh, what the prevailing, um, dosing scheme is somewhere between 0.2 milligrams to 0.6 milligrams per kilo for five days. Now that, that, I know that kind of sounds complicated for people. So the easiest way to, to, to take it is it's, it usually comes in a 12 milligram tablet. Um, with Merck, Merck makes a three milligram tablet, which is, which is a little bit uh, less convenient because it's, you know, you obviously need a lot more, but as a 12 milligram tablet uh, for five days, uh, would be sort of at the lower end of, of what's used and maybe for a mild infection and for a, or a heavier weight person, you would take more um, and probably double that for five days. And um, so but in long COVID, uh, it is being used in long COVID and also in post, um, post jab um, syndromes, you know, where people get a kind of long COVID type of um symptoms it's being used um, for longer periods uh, and until symptoms uh, disappear so it seems to have very uh, broad use in our current um, health emergency so a, a bit like you know taking more vitamin c when you actually get symptoms of an infection you're saying the major use of ivermectin would be to take something like 12 milligrams a day for five days as soon as you have any symptoms of infection? Yes, yeah, as soon as you have symptoms. For health workers and people who are at risk, um, health workers around the world are taking one tablet a week. Some take, if they're, if you know, when there's awareness that there's a more serious variant, um, they would take it bi-weekly, uh, I mean, twice weekly, I should say. Um, and... Um, so it's, to me, it's, as you say, it's like, it's sort of a common sense medicine. You know, if you're, 
if your risk is greater or your the severity of your illness is is um, high is worse, then you would take more um, or, or the higher the higher dose range. I remember reading that it sort of lurks in the lungs for quite some time. So, for example, taking you know one a week if you are potentially at higher risk, such as a healthcare worker, um, helps to kind of give you that background. Obviously, that wouldn't work with vitamin C because it's in and out in a matter of hours. Um, are there any downsides of doing that? I mean, how safe is it? Well, you know, it has been used for um, for prophylaxis against um, uh, parasitic diseases in African countries for many years, and there have been these mass administration campaigns, um, but they never used it at quite that level of frequency. Um, it has been used during the COVID period by many, many healthcare workers around the world, and there's no evidence on databases that it's that it's harmful. So, um, yeah, you know, as I say, it's it's a it's a question of of weighing up your own personal benefits and risks, and I think this is something that people need to do more and more: is to take responsibility for their health and um, and consider what their personal risks um, and, uh, and um, you know, and benefits would be. But um, as I say, it's been taken for, for some, by some people, you know, weekly for, for a year during the whole COVID period. Um, for example, Dr. Pierre Corey springs to mind uh, and, um, and he seems to be in good health. Do, do, you, ta- <laughs> do you take it? No, I don't take it. You know, I work in an office and I don't feel like I'm at risk in mm-hmm. any way. I would take it if I if I felt like I was in contact with somebody. For example, I have taken it if I've um, gone out to a social event and, um, you know, been in close contact with people. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just take a tablet this evening because just to, just for, for safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, but if I could just go back to the dosing thing. In, in India, when at the start of the pandemic in uh, Uttar Pradesh and those, those states that were using ivermectin for prevention, the healthcare workers were just taking it once uh, once a month, you know, and I think that's a reflection of its long half-life. But then when the when it seemed like there was more of a risk and the, the strains were getting worse, um, the doctor started taking it sort of every two weeks and, and it varied. So, so it went from two weeks to one week. And I know that Pierre Corey has more recently recommended uh, twice a week uh, in his setting because they were having a very bad um, strain of COVID. So it, um, as I say, it's, it's, it's kind of common sense, but it does have a long half-life. And I think if one was taking it prophylactically, um, it wouldn't be necessary in the current setting where, where COVID doesn't really seem to be um, that bad uh, to take it more than once every two weeks. Now, are Uttar Pradesh still using it? Um, well, I, I can't say categorically because I'm not there and I haven't, um, you know, but um, to my knowledge, they are using it. And that is the reason why they have such low rates of COVID. They have... Um, you know, compared to the UK, there's, there's, it's virtually negligible and they've got a population of 200 million or so. 
And is it, um, I mean, what I heard was that in, in essence, it's incredibly safe. There are some side effects noted, uh, but they relate to the treatment of parasites. And we know that when you know, some parasites die off, you get some adverse effects of that, but not actually caused by- Yes, that's correct. Um, so is it really safe for children or teenagers, even though the dosage may need to be downscaled a bit? Yes, it's safe for, for um, teenagers and children. They say you should not under the age of, under the age of five or 15 kilograms. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that doesn't mean in conjunction with the doctor, uh, you know, and considering the severity of illness, children don't get COVID badly, generally speaking. But, um, you know, a doctor might make the decision to use it uh, if a child was very, very sick. Um, can a doctor in the UK prescribe it now? A doctor can prescribe it. Um, uh, they can prescribe it off-label like any other medicine. But there is a lot of... Um, um, pushback against it. So in the advice um, that the MHRA gave, they say a doctor can use off-label medicines and can prescribe it, um, but they need to be aware that, um, that there isn't any evidence to support the use of ivermectin. So it's so this is actually not, not true and not correct. There is a lot of evidence to support ivermectin. And um, there's, uh, there's a funny sort of dual standards going on with regard to the medicines that are being allowed to be used um, by the uh, regulatory authorities and the medicines that they're kind of recommending against using. Mm. Um, and, and, and also there's a lot of um, incorrect information in the press, for example, on the BBC, really in mainstream media. Yes, because ivermectin took a bit of a bashing in the last um, few weeks. Well, before that, there was the JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, randomized controlled trial, which showed not much benefit. Then there was a Cochrane systematic review and then an attack in, in the BBC. And I'm not unused to this, having worked in nutrition. Uh, <laughs> very often when something works and is not patentable and is cheap, uh, and there's a market for, you know, for a drug that's patentable and profitable, the competitors do tend to be taken out. But just as a, a woman of science, and actually you're a bit of an expert in the Cochrane systematic review process, what's your take on the JAMA trial? What's your take on the Cochrane systematic review? And how did the BBC get it wrong? Well, the JAMA trial uh, was, you know, it was, it was strange to me that that trial has been highlighted because it is very flawed and also has conflicts of interest um, issues. So generally speaking, one doesn't, you know, one needs to look at who's funding these, these trials. Um, and, um, and so it is curious that that trial in particular was published in JAMA which is a very good journal, uh, uh, high impact journal, when in actual fact, there are many, many papers on ivermectin that are just languishing on preprint servers because uh, there's nobody, uh, no journals um, uh, wishing to publish them. And, and there's a huge delay in getting any of the date, any of these trials published. So um, what was wrong with that trial in JAMA? Um, well, it was conducted in, um, Colombia, in an area where people were all knew about ivermectin and were using ivermectin anyway. <laughs> so, right. 
Um, and also it was um, it was delivered in, in a certain, firstly, they had a mix up with the randomization process in the beginning. Um, so the people who were supposed to get placebo actually got ivermectin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it was about 70 people out of uh, 470. Uh, and so then they, they said they improved their randomization process, but the, the medicine they were giving ivermectin was a syrup and it had a, a taste. So everybody knew what mm-hmm. ivermectin tasted like and every, because they use ivermectin widely there for other reasons. And everybody knew um, who would be who got it and who was. So it wasn't a double blind trial. And um, and as I said, it was widely available and people knew ivermectin was helpful for COVID. So uh, they didn't find much of a difference. We've we've obviously included those data in our systematic review. And I think you know that the, the message is really that you can't um, just look at one trial and say um, that uh, this is the definitive trial on on a particular medicine. The whole point of evidence synthesis, which is what I do, is taking the big picture and integrating uh, the big picture, integrating different studies and and pooling data from different trials so that you get an an average overall kind of effect uh, of of, uh, an estimate of the effect of a medicine. Which is what a which is what a Cochrane systematic review should do, and I know you've been yes. very critical of the one that has been published. I should point out that um, for listeners, that the Cochrane process was uh, something set up to be able to objectively pull data from many studies, and there was a very great man, Dr. Peter Gosh, who was you know a real strong proponent of evidence-based medicine, who helped set up the Cochrane. Um, systematic review process, but uh, I think last year resigned from it, saying it had been taken over by pharma interest and was no longer doing doing its proper job. So yes, uh, here we have this Cochrane systematic review saying ivermectin is not very good. Yes, unfortunately, Cochrane has changed over the years and it's become, it was a sort of almost a volunteers organization where volunteers submitted their reviews it's become a business, you know, and it's, um, and it's got, um, you, you could call them donors, but they're not really because they have interests, you know. Um, so, um, so with regard to that particular review, uh, it was sponsored by it's it, a German group called CEO SIS, and I'm not uh, sure their, their um, interests are rather um opaque uh, it's not clear where their money comes from and um, and that that review was was really what they did was they just uh, entered if they started it with some preconceived ideas about which treatments work and which don't and then they excluded so many of the trials that um, they ended up not really having any data to pool so they had um, you know they had uh, one or two, you know, a meta-analysis is a pooling of data. And in their, in their analyses, they had one trial or two trials. So that's not exactly pooling of data when there are 10 or 15 trials that have data that could contribute to the analysis. But because they'd, they'd um, put all these exclusion criteria in, in place, they ended up excluding the, da- the, the trials. Um, and another thing that they did was they, they pre-specified the time point at which the data needed to be measured. So, for example, um, for the studies on prevention, they, they said um, 
we want to know on day 14 whether someone um, was positive or negative with a PCR test. Now, the studies didn't measure it on day 14. Mm -hmm. They might have measured it on day seven or they might have just measured it, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, as, uh, and uh, at some point it went or on symptoms and said the patient was sick or not, or, uh, got COVID or not. So because they said on day 14, they had no data. And so they said, there's, there's no evidence that ivermectin works for prevention. And that's simply not true because there are um, so many studies on ivermectin for prevention, um, not just randomized controlled trials, incidentally, um, but uh, a large number of, uh, of trials where ivermectin has been used in, in uh, hundreds and thousands of healthcare workers mm -hmm. and found that it significantly reduces their chance of getting COVID. Having been in this field for some 40 years, it, uh, I read the paper and it just smelt like a stitch up. Um, it just did. And the same with the BBC report. And it made me think that there's vested interests here. We want to bring our antivirals with lots of profit. Um, whether or not that is true is always hard to prove. But what is the cost of ivermectin versus, for example, remdesivir or this new Merck drug? Uh, what's the... Yeah, what's... well, remdesivir is... Um around uh, 3,000 pounds for a course. Uh, and in, in the UK, it's used in hospitals. So you have to get really sick, get admitted to hospital, and then you get to use it. However, the latest research on that shows, in fact, that it doesn't work and it, it causes kidney damage. So if you get into hospital, you certainly don't want to get remdesivir. Um, and as I said, it's ridiculously expensive. Ivermectin costs on its, its basic its direct cost was estimated to, uh, at something like three cents or something per tablet uh, in 2018. So it can't be can't cost too much to manufacture, uh, and it could be manufactured by a government, uh, you know, generic uh, farm company. Um, but um, the the um, Merck product itself, I I have heard Dr. Andrew Hill. I refer early on in the year to say that it would cost one pound fifty um, per to the government per treatment. Mm. Now I spoke to one vet who uses a lot of ivermectin, obviously, and it's used in sheep and horses and so on. He said it's very bad news for invertebrates. Should we be worried um, about either the effect on our microbiome or even if lots of people are taking ivermectin, it's sort of broader effects? I'm thinking here about you know, the pill in rivers and hormonal effects and so on. Is there a concern, an environmental concern? Is it something we should sort of... I think these things always need to be considered. I mean, the fact that it's used so widely in um, farming and uh, domestic animals, I think that would probably far outweigh um, the its use in human mm -hmm. beings in terms of an environmental effect. So one would really need to look at uh, how one is... Uh, uh, treating livestock, I think they're far, as I say, it's a far, would be far, a far bigger um, amount of ivermectin that would, would need to be used for that. But I think, you know, one, one can't really look at these things in isolation. There are lots of things that human beings do um, that have an impact on the environment. And one of those things might be, um, you know, uh, I mean, other medicines, the environmental impact of other medicines um, the one thing that ivermectin doesn't have is it doesn't need refrigeration. It has a long shelf life. Um, you know, it's cheap to produce and, and, um, and um, it is actually found in nature. 
Um, whereas um, the new medicines, particularly um, things like injections, you know, they have to be refrigerated, they need transporting in a certain way, um, they, uh, they have huge amounts of plastic and metals and things that get discarded. Um, and yeah, so, you know, if you think about, and, and if you look at masks as well, I mean, if, if those haven't had an environmental impact, I don't know what has. I see them littered all over the place uh, and in rivers and uh, on pavements and so on. So I think, um, I think again, the, the, um, the, for some reason, this lobby that's against us having access to these cheap medicines is trying to find any argument to, you know, against ivermectin. And as soon as you, you look at it in terms of the whole COVID um, strategy, you just realise that it's nonsense. And there's no, no negative effects on the microbiome? Um, not that I'm aware. Um, no. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking of Dr. Sabine Hazan, who is a microbiome specialist. Mm -hmm. uh in the states and she uses ivermectin um a lot in her um in her studies and in her work and she's a great um proponent of it so i'm sure if she was concerned about it having an effect on the microbiome she wouldn't be using it yeah so you know if we sort of step back a minute we have uh places like uttar pradesh with a population of over 200 million who apparently have been giving people who test positive or become symptomatic, um, a package including vitamin C, vitamin D, multivitamin with zinc, ivermectin. Um, there's a few other medications in there too. I've got some doctors currently uh, going to establish if that is still happening in Uttar Pradesh. That's kind of prevention strategy. Here in the UK, it's vaccines all the way. Uh, our science groups uh, you know, nice rapid C19, public health in England, et cetera, have kind of kept quiet about just about everything else except vaccines. And uh, I know you wanted to talk a bit about your work in, um, in the World Council for Health. What is that about? Uh, can you tell us a bit more? Yes. Uh, well, the World Council for Health is a coalition of international health, uh, legal and patient groups uh, who have come together basically to, to provide some guidance on COVID and any other emerging health issues. So, you know, we just seem to, there's been so much um, uh, incorrect information in the mainstream media. The authorities seem to be very slow to react to, to, and to give advice. There's been no advice given on, on how to maintain a healthy immune system. In actual fact, much of the, the um, information and much of their strategy has actually had a negative impact on the health of people, um, particularly with you know, lockdowns and um, masks. Masks are, are really um, bad for our health. Um, um, the mental health of our population is at an all-time low uh, of the world's population. And, um, and there just seems to be uh, no um, coherent strategy to, um, to help people during this time. So the council actually aims to, it's, it's aimed at, at um, preventing health preventing ill health, shall I say, and supporting um, people to, to take responsibility for their health, to educate themselves, 
uh, to learn about the many, many ways to get healthy, but also to, to prevent and treat COVID. Um, and also um, to support people to, to make healthy choices and realize that they have choices and they and they have the freedom to choose. It's basically the fun, our fundamental, um, you know, what makes us human really is um, our ability to, um, to think about what our options are and then, and then use the best information available to, to, to make choices. So this is a resource that anyone can go to and learn and take responsibility for themselves, learn how to support their immune system, what sort of things they can do to prevent preventable diseases, including COVID. Um, is, that, is that correct? And what is the, what is the website address? Um, the website address is um, worldcouncilforhealth.org. And, um, you know, I would encourage anybody who is, um, who is uh, part of a group or forming a group. For example, we've got, uh, um, we've got patient groups. Um, we've got um, um, nursing groups, doctors groups, um, mixed advocacy groups, for example. Uh, and also, for example, we've got the Long COVID Foundation, um, we've got um, groups from Canada, Canadian COVID Care Alliance, the uh, groups from um, New Zealand, New Zealand doctors for um, spe speaking out on science, um, South African groups, Philippines, uh, South American groups. Uh, and um, so it's, it's not only for, um, uh, but it's not only for groups, it's also for, um, for individuals uh, who are um, sorry? I'm I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm mixing everybody up, but yeah. um, also you know just um, to say that you can participate at 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 um, at, at any, any level. level. Yeah. yeah, 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 and it sounds fantastic because I mean at the start of the pandemic, well not at the start actually in December last year, I got together with now a thousand um, healthcare. Uh, practitioners, doctors, professors, uh, all across the spectrum. Uh, and we formed vitamin C for COVID.com, not because I believe vitamin C is the only thing that can help. Uh, you know, there are many others, but simply because nobody else was. So, yes, uh, we'd love to, you know, support this initiative, the World Council for Health.org. Uh, the public uh, do need to be informed. Uh, nothing in our system really teaches us about healthy immunity and how important that is. And, you know, as we know from the statistics, it's very clear that the people who are doing the things that correlate with poor immunity, you know, are having the worst outcomes. So I welcome that initiative and I encourage mm -hmm. all the listeners, please do visit um, the World Council for Health.org. And Dr. Tess Laurie, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time and your expertise to explore uh, this important subject. Thank you very much, Patrick.